Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Cozy Corner with Alexia Gordon Holiday Extravaganza. I'm Alexia Gordon, your host. All month long, I'll bring you interviews with authors chatting about their holiday-themed cozies. You'll also hear authors sharing their special holiday memories. And you'll find holiday photos and recipes on the podcast Instagram. Happy listening. Welcome, listeners, to another bonus episode of The Cozy Corner with Alexia Gordon. Author Lisa Manuel, writing as Alyssa Maxwell, joins me in the corner to chat about A Deadly Endowment, her newest A Lady and Ladies Made Mystery. Welcome, Lisa. Thank you so much, Alexia. I really appreciate you having me tonight. Now, you're quite well known for your Gilded Newport Mysteries, which are set in Gilded Age, Rhode Island. Your Lady and Ladies Made Mysteries, of which A Deadly Endowment's the seventh, take us across an ocean to post-World War I England. Would you please tell us what's happening in A Deadly Endowment? Um, sure. Um, you know, it's been a couple of years now since World War I ended, and a, a lot of people are short of money, and that includes the aristocratic families. So Phoebe Renshaw, who is the granddaughter of an earl, decides that one way to help the, the tenant farmers and the villagers with things like repairs and, and, you know, whatever is needed to be done would be to open the family estate to tours. So uh, she and her lady's maid, Eva Huntford, get it organized and they invite members of a local historical society and some school children from the village to be their first guests for their first tour. Now, Phoebe's grandparents really weren't into this idea and her siblings were divided on it. They, you know, some of them thought it was a good idea. Some thought, oh, this is kind of crass, but Phoebe convinced them and, and that this would be a good idea. Well, once everybody arrives, she and Eva pretty soon decide this was not such a great idea because it's really more than they can handle. The kids are running around and, and every time they turn around, somebody's missing. Maybe a member of the historical society has wandered off into another room by themselves. They really have a hard time keeping everybody together. And halfway through, the two of them just can't wait till it's over. Well, they finally have somebody outside. Uh, they finally have everyone outside, but somebody is missing. One of the historical society members who is writing a book about the great country houses of the Cotswolds hasn't come out and they figure, all right, she must have found something to tweak her interest and she's still in the house. Well, Eva goes back in to find her, discovers her in the library on the floor, strangled with a drapery cord. And immediately, the other six members of the historical society become suspects. The woman's son, most of all, but once Eva and Phoebe start investigating, they find out that every member of the society has something to hide, some secret, they're desperate to keep hidden, and they start having uh, lots of fun connecting all the dots and, and figuring out you know, these, this tangled web of relationships between these people. Now, a, a group of people at an English country house, one of whom's a murderer, is a classic uh, 
sort of uh, golden age classic uh, uh, theme in 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 mystery fiction. Yes. Were you did you kind of play on that classic theme, or, and how did you sort of twist it to make it your own? Well, really, the this series is based on that. You know, the the old country house kind of mystery, um, as well as a play on Downton Abbey. For this particular book, though, um, I'm going to go back uh, real quick and just say that anybody born after about 1975 probably doesn't realize how important board games were to us growing up. We didn't have video games. We barely had TV. I, you know, we had three channels in those days. So board games really, you know, was a, a favorite hobby. Um, kids couldn't play outside. They were stuck in the house. You brought out the board games. And one of my favorite, of course, was Clue. So, you know, when I started, you know, bringing these people around the house, I'm, I, I realized, you know, we kind of have a, a Colonel Mustard type and a Professor Plum type and a Miss Scarlet, you know, and um, yeah, so it kind of was a takeoff on the game of Clue. Um, and which was just a lot of fun for me. So another thing that uh, people may not realize is that in, in real life, a lot of these uh, fabulous estates do actually end up opening their doors to uh, tourists and locals to, to sort of wander around in. Uh, no, it's especially this time of year. This is a time when you get a lot of real life estates dressed up in their, their holiday they finery. And we're so kind of awed by the the spectacle. We don't think that you know somebody actually lives here. So you know what's um, you know as you mentioned, you know your protagonists are kind of have second thoughts about doing this, but they didn't just do it on a lark. So you know what's what kind of goes into the decision to open your house to a bunch of, of strangers who can afford the entrance fee? I think desperate times um, before the war. Fortunes had already taken a downturn in England, which is why they were so keen on marrying American heiresses and, and getting that industrialist money in to, to feed their coffers. But after the war, things got even worse because, um, you know, the war ate away at the economy. Uh, there were the terrible taxes. Uh, if somebody died, the inheritance taxes were huge. And a lot of these estates were already becoming white elephants. Um, and yet in England, that sense of being part of the land and being part of an estate for generations and generations was so strong that um, I think even more here than, more there than here in America, they were just willing to do as much as they possibly could to hang on to that legacy, not only for themselves, but for the generations to come. Um, now, you know, I said Phoebe's grandparents were not too keen on the idea. Her, her grandmother is absolutely aghast at the idea of people traipsing through her house, strangers. Um, but, but Phoebe reminds her grandfather that they don't really own Foxwood Hall. They are the, the current custodians of the property. They're, they're there to take care of it, to take care of the village around it and the tenant farm so that it does last for, you know, a future generations. So it's just one of those things you, you, you know, stiff upper lip, you kind of suck it up and you, and you do it for the good of all. Uh, that that's at least my next question. Uh, there's a popular Christmas movie out now called A Castle for Christmas. 
Uh, where we learned that um have you seen it (laughs) i did (laughs) i have (laughs) um and and i'm not i'm I'm actually not going to make fun of it because i actually liked it because it was brooke shields and carrie elways and it was it was so nice to see some over 40 people in a a romance uh, i absolutely agree with you there yeah even if i had to put up with elways's scottish accent but uh, that's (laughs) that's okay we forgive him But in that movie, you know, there's there's the scene where we find out how many responsibilities, both financial and moral, really, to the villages and farms that the the Duke has. And you mentioned that you know same situation in your story. You know, Foxwood Hall has uh, responsibility to Little Barlow. So for, for those mm-hmm. of us who you know literally don't know any more about how English country estates are set up beyond what we see in an Agatha Christie movie or Downton Abbey episode how are they they kind of set up and run to sort of uh, create that that tie and that responsibility well more so than here a country estate and even the village around it was was more of a family um you know the the aristocrats were the head of the household so to speak but people took care of each other yes they had they each had their roles and if you were born to the servant class that's where you were stuck but but even so you had a place in that family and it was an important one you helped keep the the wheels running um, however small or, or large your job was and it was very much um, the responsibility of the aristocrat to kind of oversee everything and to make sure that, you know, everyone, the welfare of everyone was looked after. Um, of course, that began to erode in the, as the 20th century progressed and became less and less like that. But when you think about it, it really has its roots in the feudal system where, you know, you had the Lord at the very top living in the manor and everyone was beholden to him they they owed him their loyalty and their their work um and he owed them protection so you know what we have in foxwood hall isn't really much different um in a lot of ways um yes it's it's driven more now by sentiment and uh tradition than the law of the land but for these people um, who had a sense of honor, it was very important to up, uphold those traditions. You mentioned another thing that had a big impact on uh, your characters' lives and how they found themselves in their circumstances that led them to letting these people into their home, and that's that's war. Um, your Gilded Newport series, uh, which is set in the Gilded Age in the late 1800s, uh, was a period that was... Uh, shortly after a war that was uh, very traumatic, killed a lot of people, uh, you know, scarred a lot of lives. And it was an, an era kind of marked by sort of extravagant consumption mm-hmm. and, and, and corruption. And, you know, Mark, Mark Twain came up with Gilded Age is more of an, an right. insult than a compliment. Yes, yes, it was. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the 1920s is also right after a major war, especially in England, killed huge portions of the mm-hmm. uh, marriageable age men population right. Right. Um, and scarred and traumatized everybody else. Mm-hmm. And it was another age of you know, extremes with the, the lost generation and women cutting their hair and putting on short dresses and 
booze and smoking and uh, at least in the U.S. prohibition and organized crime. Uh, <laughs> so, how, <laughs> so there yeah. are actually a lot of parallels between the two. So, um, you know, what, what sort of prompted you to pick two periods to write in that uh, were both very much influenced by a major war and such huge societal shifts that seem glamorous on one yeah. level, but the, the deeper you look, there's, there's actually a whole lot more going under there. There, there is, although my reasons for writing in each time period are really very different. Um, when I set out to write my Newport books, I chose the most, I guess you could say conspicuous, you know, conspicuous <laughs> consumption. The most conspicuous thing about Newport, Rhode, Rhode Island are those mansions. And, you know, setting it in 1895 to begin with was perfect because that was the year the uh, breakers as we know it today opened. It, it had just completed its, its uh, construction and they had their held their first parties there in the summer of 1895. Um, so really that was more about how do I best showcase the city of Newport um, because of my husband's history there, my history um, there with him. It, it was more of a place. It was the place that drew me um, to that particular time and setting. With the ladies' made books, though, I, I didn't want to set it during the war. I know a lot of people do, and those books are fascinating, and there's so much material to work with there. But when I look at people and human nature, I, I like those in-between periods. During the war, people knew what they had to do. There were roles that people needed to fill, whether it be soldiers or women uh, farming the land or working in the factories. There wasn't a lot of time for thought. You know, it was a time to work and, and, and serve your country. But after the war, things became very ambiguous. The social uh, classes were beginning, just beginning to blur because these officers and aristocrats were fighting side by side with the common man and bleeding the same color. Uh, women who had gone into the factories and were earning money for the first time in history, money of their own, suddenly were told, well, now you need to go home and be wives and mothers, even though there aren't enough men available for you to marry. Uh, meanwhile, the aristocracy had lost so much of its wealth that, you know, Phoebe, Phoebe's grandparents are, uh, their world has really been shaken. And Phoebe has to deal with that throughout the books. You know, she understands that these two extremely strong people are left a little lost in this new world that emerges from World War I. And Phoebe herself is very much shaped by the war years because she, she may seem like a woman ahead of her time, but she spent her formative teen years um, driving, the, um, driving a truck with supplies that they collected at Foxwood Hall. She would drive them to the train depots and you know, she would organize collections and, and things like that. So she, she grew up being useful and, and having to plan and, and organize and do things. Um, so yeah, I, every, everything about these characters has been partially molded by the war, but now that the war is over, they have to figure out what the world is going to do and what their place in it should be. 
And I feel like you must uh, have uh, peeked at my questions ahead of time because that uh, segues <laughs> perfectly into my next one. Um, you know, Phoebe, <laughs> Phoebe is a very modern woman by you know post World War One standards, um, and she comes up against some very conservative values you know held by um, her elders uh, and as well as her her entire social class in general. So how did she kind of navigate being a young woman who, you know, as you said, was you know grew up in a war, um, is, uh, you know, sort of come of age into the, the, the 1920s, which was a whole huge societal shift, while also being a member of a community that, you know, as you said, traces itself back to the feudal system and, and in a way kind of maintains their identity by not changing much from the way things were in, you know, 1500 and whatever, or 1300 and whatever. <laughs> right. Um, I, and she's very conflicted. Um, on the one hand, she would like to leave Foxwood Hall and go out into the world, attend university, study um, maybe law or something like that, and become a working woman. Um, she, she sees herself being able to do those things while at the same time, she may want to leave and, and you know experience more of the world, but she doesn't at the same time, want to leave her family. She doesn't want to let her grandparents down. She knows her brothers and sister, her brother and sisters need her. Um, I, I don't remember which book I put it in, but I explained the, the conflict between her and her older sister happened because before her father left for the war, he told Phoebe, I need you to look after the family because you're the steady one, basically, is what he told her. Um, so he recognized it in her. So she is left with this um, responsibility that she takes seriously. She doesn't resent it um, because she loves her family. Um, but her some of her ambitions have been frustrated. And she is in somewhat of a holding pattern when it comes to that because she hasn't given up her dreams but she also hasn't initiated anything yet to really fulfill them. I guess investigating crimes <laughs> helps her <laughs> channel some of that uh, creative and ambitious energy. Uh, in addition to the tension between uh, ancient and modern ways, you also examine the tension between social classes. Uh, you know, in one scene in uh, Deadly Endowment, a reporter wants to interview Eva, the lady's maid, uh, for her, you called it her less lofty perspective. And right. Eva's uh, surprised that anyone, you know, even wants to talk to her. You know, to us modern Americans, you know, uh, our idea of a maid or a housekeeper is completely different than what a maid or a housekeeper would have been, you know, a hundred years ago to landed gentry in, in England. Um, and from, from what I understand, um, you know, there, there was a hierarchy even within the, the servant classes. So would, would you please tell us what it would have meant to Eva to be employed at a place like Foxwood Hall? And also what specifically is a lady's maid versus any other type of maid? Well, a lady's maid is, is a lady's personal maid. She attends to her clothing, her jewelry, her shoes. She makes sure uh, her wardrobe and everything she needs for her day is, is uh, organized and readied for her. And she will fulfill basically any function that her lady might need her to do, whether it's, you know, uh, getting the post or uh, getting some flowers to put in her room or, you know, any little errands. Uh, that that a lady might need done. 
Um, for somebody like Eva, who came from a farming family, being a lady's maid is really quite, um, quite an achievement for her. I um, have it that she did attend the local uh, finishing school on scholarship because she's she is very intelligent. Of course, she never finished. So somebody in her position would more likely end up probably as a housemaid. The housemaids did the cleaning or, you know, the laundry maids, of course, did the laundry or then there were the kitchen maids. So a lady's maid was really um, kind of a cushy job in a, in a house like that, along with uh, maybe the housekeeper um, who, who gave the orders but didn't necessarily have to do a lot of the heavy work. Um, <clears throat> so she would have been, she's very grateful for that job. And because she has the family, um, she, she works for the Renshaws, who are compassionate, very fair minded people. Um, she's especially lucky because, you know, ladies' maids, even though it is a good position, aren't always, weren't always treated that well. It, it you know, it all depended on their employer. Um, I'm, you know, what was the rest of that question? Oh, that, that was it. What, what would this have, uh, you know, meant to you, to Eva? And, um... Oh, oh, yeah, you know, yes. And I did want to add that somebody in her position or any servant really was uh, neither seen nor heard at the wrong time. So someone like Eva was always in the background. She, uh, ladies' maids tend to dress in dark colors, very plain clothing. They didn't stand out. Um, they were they were in the shadows doing the work, and the same with housemaids. I I remember in Downton Abbey, and this was true. Um, one of the maids who was cleaning out the fireplace being told, "You can't be seen in this part of the house, so you know, hurry up with that and go back downstairs." Um, so yeah, for a maid or, or any servant to be asked to give an opinion would have been very unusual. And and how does the um, the fact that it's, servants were basically supposed to be like the furniture, um, just kind of uh, there? How does what kind of opportunities does that give you as a mystery writer? Um, you know, I, I can imagine someone. Uh, not noticing the quiet person in the dark clothing in the background and and saying something that perhaps they shouldn't have said. Right. It, it, it Really having the dual sleuths, having Phoebe and Eva lets me have like a sleuth who's in two places at once and where Phoebe probably wouldn't get anything out of people in the servant class or the working class because they would be too tongue-tied to be able to talk to her naturally. That's what Eva can do. Eva can work up little friendships or, you know, become someone's confidant uh, because she's on the same level as, but whereas Eva could not go upstairs and talk to any of the guests. I mean, that would be completely inappropriate. And that would be, that's always Phoebe's job to talk to the aristocrats, the higher ups. Um, so really it's a nice balance. And, and it's interesting for me because I get to go upstairs and downstairs and I go back and forth on who I feel is more interesting. Um, I know in the first book, I always couldn't wait to get back downstairs to the <laughs> servants. Um, so yeah, I tried, I tried to have a good balance of suspects who inhabit both worlds so that they can both, um, you know, both get around and, and talk to everybody. 
Now, would a lady's maid sort of be the the women's equivalent of a, a valet or valet? I'm never sure how to pronounce that uh, yes. for for the men. <laughs> yes, exactly. I, I think in this country we say valet. Is that right? And in, in England, it's valet with a T. I know we say um, valet. Yeah, that's exactly what that's exactly what a lady's is. Right, the female equi equivalent. Okay, so she's kind of like Jeeves. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> yeah. That's uh, several of your characters uh, are members of a historical society, and right. some are just what that image conjures, and some are not what you'd expect in a historical society member. Um, and I just want to, you know, disclaimer: I'm. I'm a member of some historical society, so I'm not making fun of them at all, but you know, I have to admit, you hear, you know, the something, something, something historical society and a picture pops into your head. So what inspired you to include a historical society uh, as sort of members in a historical mystery? And also, did any real life historical societies influence you? Um, well, uh, my husband and I are members of um, the Newport History historical society the oh I always get this name wrong I call it the point society but that's not actually their name but they're a, a group that um, archives and and collects information about the point section of Newport and the preservation society so uh, you know I, I love a good historical society um, I think I came up with it because I needed people to come to tour this house and I wanted them to have connections with each other. Um, yeah, how else were they going to get people to come there? You know, you couldn't advertise really. There was no way to get the word out, but having a local historical society really took care of that problem. So it, it just made sense. Uh, have you gotten any uh, feedback from any uh, historical societies or, or historians about your series? I know your Gilded Newport mysteries are actually sold uh, in the uh, gift shops of several of the historical mansions. And I, I think they might be at the Newport Historical Society bookstore too. Um, I, yeah, I, yeah, I'm not sure if they have them. Um, I haven't had any feedback on the Lady and Ladies Made books. Um, I think it's more the other way around where I've really tapped into the resources that um, the Newport, especially the Newport Historical Societies have to offer and have really based some plots around information I was able to get through through those resources. <clears throat> and excuse me, we have um, a good friend uh, who's on several of the historical societies who um, I can just send a, a message to like, hey, do you know what the inside of this particular mansion looks like? And, you know, if she doesn't, she can find somebody who does. Or uh, there was one instance where I was including the uh, inn at Castle Hill, which is now an inn and restaurant. Um, but it was it existed during the Gilded Age. And I said, I can't find anything on the inside of the house. I mean, it just doesn't exist. So she said, well, you know what, I'll go to lunch there. And she did. And she took pictures and drew me a map. And, and it was great. It was like I had I was there. Oh, and actually, I had been there years ago. But it was such a long time that I just couldn't remember. <laughs> so networking is so important in this uh, <laughs> in the writing world. It's always good to have uh, have friends yeah. in historical places. <laughs> friends and yes, in historical places. That's right. 
Now, a deadly endowment is uh, set in May 1921. Uh, but uh, just for fun, could you describe what Christmas would be like at Foxwood Hall? Well, actually, uh, the first book of this series was a Boxing Day mystery, which is the day after ah, Christmas. Yes. So it actually, you know, we have a bit of Christmas incorporated. Um, there, there was a huge Christmas tree in the Great Hall. Um, basically, um, you know, it, it's funny because I just did a post on our Sleuths in Time uh, Facebook page. I don't know if you know of a member of a, you know, group of historical authors. Um, it, there are there are really some differences between an American and English Christmas. You know, of course, there's they have the tradition of Father Christmas. Um, some of the food is different. Some of the traditions are, of course, you know, Yorkshire puddings served with sauces or gravies. Um, I was surprised to learn that Brussels sprouts was a, a common side dish, although I don't know if that would have been true back then. Um, you know, chestnut stuffing, Christmas pudding, which was usually made about a month ahead of time. Um, for those who don't know, it's not a pudding, it's more of a cake, but it's steamed rather than baked. That was a very important tradition um, to have at Christmas. But the servants would have been working all Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. So Boxing Day was their either day off or half day off. You know, usually they would all um, maybe work in the morning, get the family set up with, you know, some some cold cuts and leftovers, you know, whatever. And they could go about their business and the family supplied them with little gifts and sometimes, you know, little amounts of cash in boxes um, and would distribute the, the boxes before the servants left for their day. And that's where Boxing Day, you know, that's where the name comes from. And in that particular book, something just awful is found in one of the Christmas boxes that lead Phoebe and Eva on their first murder investigation adventure. Something much worse than, than socks that, that itch, right? Much worse than socks or <laughs> any of those gifts that you get, but you don't really want. <laughs> I'll give you a hint. This did involve a ring. That's all I'm gonna say. Okay, uh, a, a, a <laughs> ring of the of the of the kind that you you don't want Santa to give you. Okay. Well, <laughs> well, we'll leave People, it to the okay. listeners' imagination after that. Okay. <laughs> now, uh, how about uh, Christmas in Newport? I know the the Newport mansions um, do it up right for Christmas. I've I've been um, I I don't know if you I was actually in Newport for a year at the Naval War College, and oh. so. Um, I uh, got a chance to see a couple of the mansions, even though they were, you know, had to scale back because of circumstances. But this year they're making up for lost time. And I've been seeing the photos of some of the, the fabulous Christmas decorations at the Newport mansion. So what would Christmas in, in Newport have, have been like? Yeah, it's just beautiful. Well, first of all, those mansions would have been shut up and dark okay. at Christmas time. <laughs> the families only use them at, during the summer. And once the summer season okay. was over, they were gone. So yeah, such beautiful houses. And yet, I, like I said, they were dark at Christmas. There was nothing going on there. Um, you know, local people, of course, celebrated. It would have been a very, um, you know, modest types of celebrations, but there are so many kinds of churches and so many denominations of churches in Newport that I'm sure that day the, the churches would have been full. Um, 
but yeah, would have been modest, you know, nothing over the top, nothing, no conspicuous consumption, no over the top gifts for anybody. But it, you know, I'm sure it had a lot of heart, um, especially in a neighborhood like the Point section there on, on the on the water, uh, where everybody knew each other. I, I can imagine that it was just a very homey, charming um, time where neighbors got together as they do now, and probably shared some uh you know hot toddies and eggnog and things like that because if you want the really christmasy christmas so you'd be better off going to a 1920s foxwood hall than probably than, uh, yes. Newport. Okay. <laughs> or maybe new york because i guess that's where most of the families would have been back in the city or at some of their other estates you know on long island or oh, places like that go. yeah oh so just uh, hop well, i was gonna say hop on the road Hop on a boat um, and uh, head up to uh, New York City for a Gilded Age Christmas mm-hmm. there. Right, <laughs> right. And uh, for folks who sort of want to um, experience uh, the 1920s vicariously or, or the Gilded Age vicariously, where can they buy a copy of, of your books, either a Deadly Endowment or, or one of your a book from one of your other series? Well, they can be ordered online from pretty much, you know, any bookseller, whether it's an independent or, uh, you know, one of the bigger ones. Um, you can go to your independent bookstore, and if they don't happen to have what you're looking for, you can always ask them to order it for you. Most will always do that. So they're, they're readily available. And, of course, if you happen to go to Newport, <laughs> you can look for them at the mansion stores or some of those, some of the bookstores there. Um, so, yeah, as far as I know, everything is still in print and, you know, they're available in the soft cover, hardcover, audio and uh, ebooks. So, oh, and yeah. I, I can vouch for charter books in Newport because um, I actually oh, saw them I there. S- <laughs> oh, I haven't seen them yet. I can't wait to go back and visit. We're going um, in the spring, I think. It was it's an it's an awesome store. It's a they when did they open it? They opened it while I was there. So it's, it's a fairly new store that they may be a year old now, but uh, yeah, it's a, it's a great uh, local bookstore with, uh, you know, wonderful uh, local booksellers. Um, and I think they have, they had all of your Gilded Age books right up front in the mystery section. Oh, that's so wonderful to hear. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, besides on bookshelves, where can readers find you to, to find out more about uh, Newport and, Foxwood Hall and and your historical novels uh, on social media or a website? Yes, they can find me at uh, alyssamaxwell.com. And I actually have a couple of pages dedicated to the Newport books. I haven't done that yet for the uh, for the um, Lady and Ladies Made books, but there's lots of information about Newport. And from there, you can find me on Facebook. I even have some Pinterest pages set up for the for both series. Instagram, Twitter, <laughs> you know, and on Facebook, I have uh, Alyssa Maxwell, the Gilbert, um, the Gilded Newport Mysteries page, and I mentioned Sleuths in Time earlier. Uh, there's eight of us in that group, so anybody who loves historical mysteries, please check out Sleuths in Time on Facebook. There's a lot of really wonderful writers um, that I I work with and. Um, you know, share our experiences with. 
in and I'll, I'll put the links for those in the, in the show notes. Great. Thank you. And thank you for joining me in the, the corner today, Lisa. I, I know you've got uh, holiday uh, things going on. So I appreciate you taking the time out to chat with me. Oh, I appreciate this so much. Thank you, Alexia. And thank you listeners for tuning in to another episode of the Cozy Corner with Alexia Gordon. You've been listening to me chat with Lisa Manuel, who, as Alyssa Maxwell, writes the Lady and Ladies Made Mysteries as well as the Gilded Newport Mysteries. Her newest is a deadly endowment. Until next time, happy holidays and goodbye. Thank you for listening to The Cozy Corner with Alexia Gordon, part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm Alexia Gordon, award-winning author and host of the show. Tune in next time for another chat with an author writing on the lighter side of crime. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye.